Hey, Larry, how's it going? I'm good. How are you doing, Roman? I'm doing real good. I'm uh, glad to be back for our third episode of UX Like Us. I hope you had Woo-hoo! a great thank UX giving. I had an awesome thank UX giving, and I'm looking forward to UX Christmas? <laughs> UXmas? That's right. <laughs> Well, I just got a I got a comment on that real quick is uh that jingle that you put together in the last episode was fantastic. Uh, to the point that later on uh during dinner my kid is singing to himself, "Thank you, X." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny story on that. So like my kids also uh did the same thing. They 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 cuz I cuz I was like playing it for him after I recorded it so they could hear it and of course they were singing that afterwards, but I um incidentally have done another song for a different podcast, uh a one one more um much more popular podcast, but this was like a few years ago. And my kids continue to sing that song as well. So that's uh um yeah, they I I guess I'm pretty good at making catchy jingle podcast things oh absolutely i was gonna tell you you've missed your calling and you know if you ever go for a third career it should be writing jingles because i mean that thing is just stuck (laughs) maybe i'll make that my first career (laughs) the one you take seriously (laughs) yeah Well, today's episode, uh, I know we were planning to talk about work in progress, but there's something burning on my mind that I just absolutely have to bring up and and chat with you about today. Um, So I've gone to uh, Mac OS Mojave. Oh, yeah, Mojave. I've been salivating to get a hold of this thing because I've been so hot for dark mode. Yes, the dark mode, the the bat, or like I call it the Batman mode. Yes. I was like, oh man, that's so rad. I can't wait to get that. All my apps running in dark mode. So I finally installed Mojave today, immediately opened the preferences, set it to dark mode. And so far, I kind of hate it. <laughs> and why is that? Um, you know, I'm, I'm finding it kind of hard to, to see and to read. Like, uh, so on the, on the big giant uh, Apple monitor, uh, I have a hard time distinguishing windows from each other, like what's part of a menu bar and what's just part of content. And then like I'll open a web page and it's got this crazy white background with, you know, everything else is dark. Um, basically, there's just these contrast issues that is kind of driving me crazy. And uh, I generally think I have pretty good eyes, but I'm just having a real hard time reading things. Yeah, so I have um, the opposite eyes of you. Um, They're pretty bad. And I find reading white text on a dark background on a monitor just very, very frustrating. It is really, really difficult for me to read. And I have a, a lot of problems doing that. So I also have Mojave, but I have Mojave in two different places. I have it on my Mac at home, mm-hmm. um, which I don't do work on. I do mostly like recording and, you know, you know, just, you know, more home stuff. Um, and whereas work, I do, you know, work stuff with like mm-hmm. lots of, you know, typing and, and, and presentations and maybe some design every once in a while. And on my Mac at home with the dark mode, I like it because mm-hmm. 
the apps that I use like logic and, and, you know, and iMovie and things like that already are in dark mode. Right. And so it kind of fits into the workflow of all the stuff that I typically do on my, my, my work or my home lap, uh, computer, but on my work laptop. Yeah. I turned on uh, dark mode and I immediately hated it. I immediately couldn't like, I would like open up a notes app and like all my stuff is like dark background with white text. And I just can't read that. Yeah. It's uh it's crazy just how difficult it is. And, uh, you know, I was familiar with, uh, old studies that, you know, from usability perspective said that, you know, light text on a dark background is harder to read. And so, you know, I knew that cognitively, but I hadn't really, I guess, experienced it myself so much to where I've like, I've really been struggling with it. The other thing I notice is, um, just basic design elements that used to be great now look kind of garbage against this this uh, dark environment. So things like app icons that now are just like too bright and uh, like the, the, the icons on my desktop, you know, it's like, it's a word doc. And so basically it's a bright white uh, rectangle on a dark background. And so it just, it looks really, really bad. Yeah, I think... Um, the, also the switching back and forth is the, is the, is the, the killer for me. And I always found that, um, very, you know, annoying on websites. Like if you like, you know, you're going to most websites, you know, have dark text on a white background mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Or, you know, are, are mostly like that. And then you'll run into the one that's all dark with like white text and that contrast of going from the, the really white page to the really dark page just it's it's jarring and it's i think it's you know that switching is 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 the worst part of it um um but yeah i don't know dark mode i think for doing you know the, like i said the 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 music and the video editing tasks that i sometimes do i think works great but like for regular work or regular web page browsing or trying to type up a document or re consume a document um i think it's the pits so i heard that there's um uh, a uh what did they call it when they propose a CSS rule? Oh, one yeah. One of them has uh, one of those proprietary rules uh, that actually is supposed to query the system. And I, I think the property is something along the lines of prefers dark background. So ultimately, in your CSS, you could start doing crazy stuff like saying, oh, this guy is using the dark mode in Mac OS. And so therefore we're going to present the dark version of the app, um, which, you know, ultimately it would save a lot of people's eyeballs, you know, going back and forth between the the heavy contrast, like you were saying. But I wonder if it's one of those places where, like, this decision by Apple to essentially commit developers everywhere to now supporting light and dark modes for everything, um, you know, if that over time is just going to change the way everything looks, because now you've kind of got to, you know, never make anything too bar- too bright white because that's going to hurt your eyes. But if you make it too dark, <laughs> you know, that's not going to work very good either. Uh, yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, number one, that yes, I th- believe that's a Safari only thing. Um, I heard some people talking about that, that you can like, you know, check this attribute in, um, in the CSS and, and it only works in Safari. And then you can just, you know, have a dark mode um, style sheet for that. Um but I mean, this is dark modes only on the Mac and the Mac does not have that much uh, market share. So I doubt if developers and web 
um, web developers in droves are going to jump on the dark mode bandwagon <laughs> to uh, make all their sites dark mode um, compatible. I just don't see that happening. Windows-oriented people could have it as a, a user preference to set because they, they love having user preferences. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Everything's a preference. You want it, you got it. Well, anyhow, that was uh, just one of those things. You know, I'm I'm probably a little little bit tardy to the party as far as the dark mode goes because uh, I just now put Mojave in. But I was just shocked to hear myself thinking, eh, I kind of don't like it. Yeah, I'm not not a big fan myself. Yeah, oh, what a shame. Pity that <laughs> <laughs> they spent a lot. Of, I, I'd like to know how much money they spent on implementing that. Yeah, or how much user research they did. <laughs> Apple? <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I request the highest of fives. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the main thing we wanted to talk about today was this idea of uh, work in progress. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll ask you for a little backstory there. What uh, what put this top of mind for you? Uh, it's something that I've... Um kind of struggled with my whole UX career and I didn't really realize uh, it as a thing until, you know, until, until recent years. Um, And, you know, it's like one of those things is like, you you know, you have these experiences that you have and then at some point you like, like have an aha moment of like, Oh, that's this. And this is a, this is why it's a problem. And here's all these other people talking about that. I think this is uh, the case for me. Um, So like, you know, if I go back in time and think about like my first real UX job when I was uh, working at one of the large uh, consulting companies and uh, doing, you know, usability studies for uh, uh, government agencies. um, It was one of those things where it's like, you know, government agency has a bunch of money and at the end of the year and they have to spend it. So they'll spend $250,000 on a usability study. Um, and so, you know, this is my first, you know, big consulting project. And I go in there and we're like, you know, doing this usability study. We have like three people on this project, which was, was kind of nuts. <laughs> um, and you know, we go in there, we talk to a bunch of users and we do a heuristic evaluation and, you know, just, you know, doing all these things I, you know, learned in school and I've been reading about and it's like, you know, doing it in a, in a, in a real world situation. And, you know, we get to the end, we had a really great client and everything. She was awesome and she loved us and she, you know, got us all the things that we needed to do to do to our work. And it's great. And we, you know, we get to the end. It's like, here's all these usability recommendations and here's some designs that you can make your website so much better based upon all this research that we did. Right. And we're really gung ho about it, but we get to the end of the project and they implemented like one suggestion of ours because they didn't have any money to actually do any of the work to make any of the changes that we suggested. (laughs) So they managed to do one of like, you know, the, the 25 um, recommendations that we had. And so (laughs) This is my like my first big project in, in, in user experience. I'm just like, what what just happened there, right? Well, if the and, UX study cost a quarter million dollars, how in the world could we do the actual work? <laughs> exactly. And so it's like, you know, what happened here? So like, I guess it's just the way the government works, right? And so, you know, and then, you know, and I continue to do consulting. And, you know, a lot of times that, that same thing happens where it's like, you know, you do a bunch of design work up front and then... Um, you know, after that design work's done, 
nothing gets implemented or very little gets implemented or, you know, so it's like, you know, what's going on here? Um, and that, you know, continues. So into my, um, um, my current position where, you know, we're at, you know, at an enterprise software company and, you know, I'm coming in here and, you know, I'm kind of experiencing the same thing. It's like, okay, we, you know, we want to do all this really good design work and we get, get some good designers in there. They do some good research. They understand the customer problems really, really well. And they put out all these designs like, oh, we're, we're going to do this design. We're going to change this thing. And then nothing gets implemented. And you're just like, and I just like started to realize it's like, well, the reason nothing's getting implemented, well, there's lots of reasons, you know, there's, there, there's <laughs> technical debt reasons and organizational reasons and all these other reasons why, you know, design doesn't actually get implemented. But one of the biggest problems is like, there's no developers to actually pick this work up while we're doing it. And what happens was, is the, the you know, we do work and that, that pile of work gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it piles up and it piles up and piles up. And then there's this bottleneck of nobody to actually implement it because, you know, you have a development team that's only so big or it's being, it's being, um, you know, dedicated to one thing or another. And none of this work that you're doing is, 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 is getting picked up. And so, and I started to, you know, read, read some things and, and, and hear people talking about work in progress. And I was just like, Oh yeah, that's what's going on. We have this work in progress problem where we have a bottleneck of, Hey, here's all this design work we do. It doesn't get picked up. And now it's all this, the work in progress keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the bigger that work in progress gets the less likely any of it's going to get done or actually get implemented and so that's why i wanted to talk about this because i think it's a it's a it's a huge problem in that's kind of been a theme like everywhere i've been in 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 design and it i think it's it's something that um um bears you know focusing on talking about sure one of the really perverse things about that work in progress problem is that you as a designer can work your butt off trying to stay ahead of things and looking at the roadmap and, and, and working towards you know what foreseeably is coming, but then it spends a long time in the hopper and things kind of change over time such that then when you know, dev organization is ready to pick it up and work on it, they actually need something a little different. And so now design is behind again. Yes, design is behind again. Exactly. And so um, one of the things that I've been conscious of as we you know we've grown the practice and we're planning on growing the practice even bigger is to make sure that as we grow the practice, we are we have to be really, really closely coordinated with what the you know the growth of the development team as well, because we there there there's sort of a balance here where um if you get you know, if you have too many designers and not enough developers to pick it up, then you get a bunch of work in progress. If you get a bunch of front end developers and not enough designers to keep them fed, then you have developers supposedly sitting around doing nothing. Um, <laughs> now, I, I'll, I, I can uh, uh, quibble with that uh, that um, attitude a, a little bit, but that's what you know. That's the reality of what what you know what you know management sees. It's like, well, designs behind now because they don't they can't keep up with you know what development's doing. So is, is there sort of a, this balance here? Um, um, and ultimately, you just want to get you know value into the hands of customers, and um, and when you have work in progress that's all built up, uh, that doesn't get doesn't provide any value. Yeah, I mean that that one uh, you know classic phrase there that uh, we got developers sitting around doing nothing. 
to me, that sounds a lot more like a people problem <laughs> than, a, than a work problem. Right. I mean, there's lots of things that developers can be doing other than writing code, right? Uh, I think that, you know, this is going off at a little bit of a tangent here, but I think there's always an attitude with management. It's like, well, if a developer's not writing code, then they're not doing anything valuable. And I call that into immediate um, BS because there's lots of things they could doing, like learning about the problem and learning about customers and learning about the customer problems that they're trying to solve so that when they make decisions in development, they're making informed decisions as opposed to uninformed decisions. But that's not what we're talking about here today. <laughs> that's, that, that's, a, that's a whole podcast in itself. So you've been looking a lot at the, the work in progress problem, doing a lot of research. Uh, who's, who's good to, to look at on this issue? Well, so I think that when I finally add the the aha moment on this when I was reading um, a book uh, about DevOps of all things. Um, so um, I, 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 a lot of the, you know, like I said, the aha moment came when I read this book. It's called uh, The Phoenix Project. Have you heard of this? I've heard of it, but I'm drawn a blank. So for um, you out there who are, have not heard of this, it's uh, Phoenix Project is a one of those management-oriented novels. So it's like, it's, it's about management, um, mm, but mm. it is a novel. So it's like a whole story that, you know, there's characters and story arcs and all that stuff. And so the story is about a guy who's, um, basically thrust into a VP of it role, um, at the very beginning of the book. And then he is of course, quickly blamed for everything that's going wrong with the company. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> You know, there, there's payroll problems that um, are based upon, you know, IT not performing. And so that um, it, you know, gives makes the company close to being a headline because they're not paying their, their people. Um, <laughs> there's marketing people pushing out promotions. IT be demand damned if they can even deliver it or not. Um, it's uh, it's an auto parts um, manufacturing or uh, manufacturing and um, uh, retail company so they have this store opening with this big promotion and their order system totally falls over um and then you know the company is about to be sold or merged because you know they're not being able to keep up with their more nimble op um uh competition so you know this is gets all dumped into this vp you know of it slapped as he gets just his promotion and he has to deal with all this stuff and so he's trying to figure out how to do it. He's trying to deal with all these different characters and um, figuring out how to, how to do this better. And um, there's this mysterious board member <laughs> that um, <laughs> his CEO says, you have to go talk to this guy. And of course, this guy's kind of like the weird, long haired, um, not your typical, you know, businessman board member. Um, but he's like sort of the sage wisdom for this new, um, uh, oh, okay. newly, um, uh, uh, promoted VP of it. Um, and he's just kind of a pain in the ass because he won't tell them, he won't tell the guy exactly what he should do. Right. He's, but he's like, he forces him to discover it on his own by guiding him through these op various observations of different things. I mean, and most of the observations are they go to the actual factory floor where they're making these particular items. And he, you know, he's, 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 you know, pointing down, see, you see what's going on here, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, he, and he talks about like, Oh, there's, there's work piled up here. And so he started making analogies to actual, you know, um, manufacturing floor, um, 
problems where they have to optimize for the flow of goods from one station to another during the manufacturing process. And when things start to, you know, pile up, that becomes a bottleneck and things don't actually get into the hands of, you know, into the stores for sale. Um, there's uh, different inefficiencies in handing off pieces from one station to another. And so he, he shows them all this thing and then eventually he, he, he starts to, you know, understand the problems of the manufacturing and how he can apply it to um, IT and DevOps. And, and, and DevOps. And so what ends up happening is the, the book sets up these, you know, this, this parable um, and they describe these, what they call the, the, the three ways of, 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 of continuous delivery that um, he discovers throughout the novel. And one of those three, you know, the, the three ways are, you know, basically the principle of flow. The second way is the principle of feedback. And the third way is the principle of continuous learning and experimentation. Um, but the principle of flow is the one that sort of talks about the work in progress part of it. And mm, that's okay. the, that's the part of the story that really made me like make that connection between, you know, you know, UX building up a bunch of design work that, you know, doesn't get picked up by development and never makes it um, into the, the hands of customers to create value. And then ends up, you know um, you know, the priorities of the company change or different direction and product or a big, you know, large customer comes in and says, oh, we need this thing. And then you, you know, all the, the whole team goes and tackles this new problem because it's, there's, you know, millions of dollars in, in, in revenue at stake. And so, and then all the stuff that sits on the shelf ends up not getting um, implemented and doesn't get, you know, create value for customers. And then, you know, you're off to on the next, you're off to the next problem. And then all that stuff, all that work that you spend on your, it's basically burning piles of money. <laughs> You know? Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and that's like that, that. That's the big problem with, it. and that's the the part that really you know um, uh, makes me want to attack this problem um, because it's, I think again, you know, nobody, you know, no executive wants to burn piles of money, and I feel like that's what happens when you build up big queues of work in progress, especially in in, in design. Well, I think a lot of people are resistant to even measuring that because you know there's that that fear factor of basically being, you know, the the one on the hot seat that that's to blame. Like, oh, wow, our organization just cranked out, you know, months of design that's going unused and you know, you don't necessarily want to even talk about an issue like that for fear of uh, you know, some smarty pants uh, you know, executive saying, "Hey, I know where I can tighten the budget." Um but, you know, it's just good management to say, hey, where are we being wasteful? How can we uh, restructure our organization and our processes to optimize that that uh, throughput? Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things, too, where I, w- I always think to myself, it's not rocket surgery, right? Like, you know, there's companies who do really, really complicated stuff, um, you know, supply chain management, things like that. I think about like Apple and like their ability to more or less have the new product in the stores on a certain date and tell you when they're going to be there and it's there. I mean, we won't beat up on air power right now, but you know, for the most part, <laughs> they, they really have just worked that out to a science, you know? So then when it comes to like other organizations that are organized suboptimally, um, you know, it's hard to kind of stomach that uh, that wastefulness when you know that uh, there's improvements that could be made. 
Right. And I think, I, I think you make a really good point because we're making the analogy of, you know, like physical devices to creating software, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's, there, there, there's definitely parallels there, but they're, they're, they're completely different animals. And one of the ways to reduce, you know, the, the, the amount of work in progress is making the work visible, right? Like when you're, you know, you're on the factory floor and you see stuff piling up in one place and, and no goods coming out on this other side, you know, that's really obvious because you can see that. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of times the the problems we have in, 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 in software development is like visibility of the work that's actually happening. Um, it's really hard to see, you know, what people are actually doing because, you know, they're typing on a screen and they're, they're p- putting code and they're checking in code. Um, and maybe the, the development manager sees those check-ins, but, you know, does an executive, should they? Or, you know, how do we make that visible um, t- so everybody can see what's actually happening? And so one of the things I think is really, is, is been really positive, at least for the design community, is like having tools that make your work really, really visible. You know, tools like, you know, that's something like we're using like Envision, right? Um, the more that we can get people in the organization to see the work we're doing, the more likely I think it's, 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 it's going to actually get implemented. I have a, a story from one of the jobs I used to work at. Um, we had, uh, I, I did a read, I did a redesign of a, of a, of a, an alerting interface for a, a an enterprise software or enterprise security software, um, um, uh, product. And nobody, asked for it, but I knew it needed to be done. (laughs) So I did it anyway. And, um, but I just made sure that people saw it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Hey, you know, this is the way people are doing it now. Here's all the problems with it. Here's some, here's some actual usability videos of people not understanding what this thing actually is or where the information is they're looking for. And here's a new way of doing it. And here is, you know, videos of people, you know, being successful with it, um, compared to the other one. And just like, I just kept showing people, you know, even, you know, and, and it took a while for it to sink in for, you know, for, for, and, and, and for it to get importance, but just the visibility of it, it was the, the thing that actually, you know, made it real for people and eventually got, you know, it got implemented, but we, I had to show it a lot and it had to really sink in. That's a damn good insight. Uh, you know, as you were uh, describing that, uh, you know, back up on the factory floor, I had the mental image of, uh, you know, Lucy and Ethel shoving chocolates in their mouth and... <laughs> You know, it, it, it's a good observation. You know, if you see that somebody else is bottlenecked, they're backed up, they can't take your capacity, you know, it's fine to say, hey, Ted, slow down for a minute. You know, we we can't take that just yet. Um, so I know the there's a lot of virtues to, to showing work. I, I think one thing that also jumps out at me about what you're saying there is that uh, showing work, having visibility of work uh, does not mean hanging it in the hallway and, you know, hoping people look at it on their way to the bathroom. Uh, I, I think it takes probably a little bit more salesmanship than that. <laughs> Although we've done that. <laughs> well, I mean, for a long time, that was kind of some of the, the, the folk wisdom in UX, right? It's like, oh, if you hang up everything in your window and people walk by and they'll, they'll see it and they'll know that you're busy. Um, <laughs> I think this is a little bit different in terms of like actually showing, uh, like you were saying that the, uh, video s- snippets from uh, user tests and things like that where they can see, oh, this is a, a marked improvement and we, we need to use it. 
So, I mean, so that's one way of, of, of reducing work progress is like make the work visible so people can see it. So it, that makes it real. Right. And so it's like mm-hmm. on the factory floor where you can actually see, oh, here's a bunch of work piling up. All right. Um, a, a, another way to do that is um, reducing the the size of the, uh, you know, the batch size. Right. It's mm-hmm. like the, the, the smaller you can make your batch size, the, the quicker you can get it off your plate and into, you know, into, um, you know. Uh, real software and real code. So, you know, instead of like doing this huge redesign on something, do something really tiny, you know, mm-hmm. let's, let's like, let's, let's just fix this one thing, you know, um, based upon what we know and, 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 and prioritize, you know, the, the problems that people are having, maybe we can do this, this one improvement thing, which is a lot easier for, you know, to us to, to, to sneak into, um, you know, a sprint or something like that. So making the batch size really, really small also helps, you know, reduce that work in progress so that we are not, you know, we don't have these huge batch sizes. In fact, I think uh, John Cutler has a really good um, illustration of this. His, his, he's got this big batch versus small batch um, um, diagram. And so it's just like a, it's just like a, a, a timeline. And when you do big batches, there's like a, the, the, the red underneath the diagram gets really, really big. And then you get green on the top. There's like a little bit at the top. And so the green is really the value you're delivering versus, um, the uh, technical and UX debt and wasted efforts and stuff that you're building up on the bottom. So when you have big batches, you um, you get a big buildup of unproven ideas that you don't learn um, mm-hmm. whether they're good ideas until you've delivered way down. And so you got this big batch that, that, you know, um, doesn't get delivered for a long time. You build up more technical and UX debt. You have a lot more wasted effort. Um, whereas you, when you do smaller batches, you get to learning much, much quicker because you're, you're delivering smaller amounts of value to customers and you're getting that you're, you are more likely to have that feedback loop. So you're getting more learning, you're getting more customer value delivered, and you're also having more efficient uses of resources because you're less likely to do a bunch of work. That's not actually going to be valuable. Yeah. I, I, I'm particularly fond of this principle of reducing the batch size. It's just, uh, Whenever our appetite gets really big for you know some crazy monolith of a project, you know you you, you really gotta go back to say, okay, what what are the small pieces that we can actually start to learn from, and you know it it it's a tough one I think um, for a lot of designers. Uh, you know, speaking for myself, it, that can be tough because you tend to think in complete systems, right? So like. Well, if I improve this setting over here, then then I need to go over there and improve the other thing that is you know marginally related. You know, uh, it it can be hard to to exercise that discipline, but you know, again, knowing that it can solve a really key issue uh, for your entire team to to go to smaller batches, it's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I think the doing really small batches is really hard because it's very counterintuitive to um, the way people have worked in the past. And there's, you know, they just, it's very difficult for people to like get in the mindset of like, well, we can just do this one thing and, and not really make it blow up into all those other things that you, you, you think you have to touch for that. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. true. I mean, like if you're, if you're making cars, like you've got to make the complete car before you can take it to the, the Nürburgring and, and, you know, uh, test it out. Uh, but with software, that's just not the case. You can do little, little pieces. Yep. Why did I pick the Nürburgring? 
<laughs> That's where all well, the yeah, best I mean, cars are tested out. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't think you can. I mean, you could take your, you, you know, you know the the MVP diagram where it starts with a skateboard and goes to like a scooter and then a motorcycle, bicycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you take can you take the your your, your skateboard to the Nurburgring and then upgrade <laughs> upgrade to your scooter and then to the bicycle and eventually get to the to the Bugatti? <laughs> <laughs> now you're talking. <laughs> Well, we'll have to uh, put that uh, diagram you were just referencing uh, in, in the show notes. Do you have any idea how long I've waited to say we're going to put something in the show notes? Hey, Exciting. we have the technology to put stuff <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> but yeah, for anybody who doesn't have a clear mental image of that, we'll be sure to include it. Right. So I wanted to cover another thing about you know, so, I mean, we talk about work, work, you know, work in progress, but I want to, I want to really, you know, talk about the things that we can do to actually, you know, reduce those. And so we talked about, you know, making work visible. We talked about reducing batch sizes. Another one that came up in that book that really resonated with me was the, the reducing the number of handoffs, right? Um, so the, the more handoffs of you have of work, the more times it takes you to get through the the the, the work stream and in you know and value into customers' hands, um, which I think is you know one of the reasons why I think small balanced teams work so well um, instead of you know designers you know you know product management going out and you know saying okay here's the problems that we're going to go solve and then they throw it over to design and design goes out and they decide design the the big solution for how that's going to work and then design throws it over to the fence to development and development figures it out and figures out how to develop it and then they throw it over to QA and then QA figures out you know if it's if it's quality or not right and all those different handoffs make getting value from, you know, from the initial insight into value into the customer's hands take a very, very long time. And so if we can reduce the number of handoffs that happen, that means we can get, you know, value into the customer's hands quickly. And so that's why I like the balanced team approach where you have very small teams that are cross, um, cross-functional um, to, you know, that collaborate very, very closely on, you um, specific problems that are we're, we're trying to solve for customers and giving that uh, those uh, autonomy to you know go um, do that customer research together design those you know the the solutions together you know iterate on those solutions together and 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 really you know i i think that's and it, that combined with you know small batch sizes can really make that that time from going from insight to delivery of customer value very very small well people who uh who listen to this podcast for any amount of time will spot a trend. I'm horrible at remembering who said really intelligent stuff that I read somewhere. <laughs> but in this particular <laughs> case, uh, I wish I could remember who it was. I'm, I'm thinking Jim Kalbach, um, because we saw him at a, at a conference uh, where he was talking about um, uh, journey maps and, and user, uh, user uh, journey maps and, and service blueprints. Um, and if he's not the one who said it, I apologize to whoever actually did say it. Uh, but he's a smart guy, so it's probably him, right? Uh, <laughs> he was pointing out that uh, a typical, you know, process diagram or flow diagram of of any sort has a bunch of nodes and then these skinny little lines that connect them. And it's the skinny little lines that need designing because that's where stuff is happening. You've got these stationary nodes, whether it's people or systems or what have you, 
But the interesting part is how things move through that system. And so, you know, basically, the, uh, you know, the key artifact that we use to represent most things actually has the, the least visual fidelity for the most important part. Yeah, that's an interesting um, way of thinking of it. Um, and I would say that, you know, in, 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 in the lens of, you know, trying to reduce work in progress, it's like making less nodes <laughs> and mm-hmm. reduces the number of those, those skinny little lines that you have because those, and then you have to design that less. Like, um, I think that, you know, agile and, and scrum has come about to, you know, sort of as a framework to manage that. Right. Um, it's like, how do we, how do we, how do we manage all this stuff? And it's like, well, we're going to have all these, you know, these rituals and we'll have, you know, all these checkpoints and, you know, we'll, we'll keep that communication out there so that we can make sure that all these nodes and all these, you know, these paths between nodes are, are coordinated in some way. And I think that's just trying to tackle the problem from, Hey, we have to manage all these different paths as opposed to, can we actually eliminate some of these paths and just make this, you know, get, you know, get these cross-functional people closer together and actually solve these problems without having with, and just, you know, reducing the number of, of, of reducing the complexity of the system, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's really, uh, it's good thinking. So, so based on these, uh, cause you said that was, there were three points, uh, overall for the work in progress problem. Yeah, so we talked about work, making work visible, reducing batch sizes, and um, reducing the number of handoffs. Um, <clears throat> now, they talk about some other things, too, about you know limiting waste in the volume stream, um, like creating features that are, aren't actually adding customer value. Um, task switching is a big one. I mean, you, you hear that a lot with, um, um, in, you know, development teams or, you know, developers like, you know, interrupted and you know there's 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 um you know research out there that says you know if you're in the flow of doing something and solving a problem if you Mm -hmm. get interrupted even for like a second it takes a it takes 20 minutes to get back into that flow Mm -hmm. and so interruptions are a huge amount of waste you know in the value stream and so being able to you know reduce the number of times people are interrupting or switching between one task and another, you know, uh, helps really helps reduce that, 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 uh, types of waste in, you know, the type of knowledge work that we do. That's a, that's a real big one for me. I'm a, a self-proclaimed monotasker. Uh, when people talk about multitasking, I, I don't even try to pretend that's just not, not something I'm strong at. And I don't know why we don't put more, good focus on that, uh, you know, in, in, in most work environment, because, you know, I, I heard a study where, um, the UPS truck routing software goes out of its way to avoid making left turn just because they know that a left turn is going to take longer, you know? And it's like, if, if we can pay that much attention to optimizing those few seconds of wait time at left turns for, you know, delivery trucks, why can't we put that same level of uh, diligent thought into designing our human processes to eliminate things like interruptions and task switching? Um, that's because, you know, the open office is really cheap to implement <laughs> and CFOs love it because uh-huh. you just say, oh, get this big space and you put some cubes in there and it's really cheap to do that as opposed to, you know, actually building people private spaces where they can you know, get into flow and focus on problems that they're trying to solve. No, Larry, we're collaborating. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
good time. So uh, with those kind of main principles, uh, did that inspire any specific uh, action items that, that you're planning to try to bring to work? Well, I mean, you know, the, you know, the making the work visible, I think, you know, we've, we've, we've started to try to do things to make that, um, uh, to, to, to make that happen in, in our own practice. Um, um, trying to work with development to, you know, make, get that balance between, you know, designers and developers to make sure that, you know, when we do do design, we can, you know, make sure it actually is being, you know, picked up and, and, and implemented, um, in, in a much more expeditious fashion, as opposed to letting that, you know, that, that, those, uh, that, you know, that work build up and, you know, making smaller teams, getting, you know, development design and PM to work closer together in smaller teams and, and, and empowering them to make decisions on, on how to solve certain problems that they're assigned to. I think those are the things that I'm, you know, I'm, I really want to focus on, you know, in the practices that I'm, I'm trying to manage to make sure that, you know, we're, we're really keeping that work in progress to, uh, to a very, very minimum. Well, I think that'll pay off really well. Uh, you know, especially as people are trying to, uh, really innovate our, our process. And we can, it's all thanks to DevOps. Thank you, DevOps, for discovering all this and writing this wonderful book, The Phoenix Project. <laughs> I, I, I just, I don't even remember why I started reading it. It's like, oh, you know, something about DevOps. I'm going to learn more about it. So I started reading this book and I was just like, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of a, a page turner because it's, you know, a novel and it's a story and there's characters and all that stuff. But then I was just like, oh my God, there's so many parallels to the things that we're doing in design and, and, and product development. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started reading more about it. It's like, oh yeah. And there's, there's definitely, you know, nods to, 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 to lean product development and, mm-hmm. and in it as well, because uh, the first way um, is talk about the principle of flow, which is the thing we focused on here. The second way is the principles of feedback. And so like having that feedback loop, build, measure, learn, mm-hmm. you may, you know, from, from, you know, you know, lean startup and, and, and lead product development. And then the third way is continuous learning and experimentation and, you know, creating safe environments for people to experiment and to fail and to, you know, to, 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 to learn from that. Um, and continue to, you know, learn about the customers and customer problems and all that stuff that comes in. So it's, it's very, very, um, analogous to, you know, some of the lean startup and, 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 and lean product development methodologies that, you know, people like Jeff Cotthelf talk about. Um, so there's definitely some, some, some similarities between the two, the two philosophies. Yeah. I was thinking it sounds a, a lot like, uh, you know, even lean manufacturing, right. When you, when you t- take that, uh, factory floor metaphor. And apply it to what we're doing. Go, hey, let's let's control that flow. Yeah, and I and I feel like you know, reading things like this that talk about problems in different disciplines really helps to nail home the point for your own div- disciplines too, because it helps you think about it in different ways. And mm-hmm. so I I really enjoy you know reading books about things that aren't UX that you know talk about you know similar psychological problems or or or, or other organizational problems in in different disciplines that you know have analogous things to you know what we do in UX. And so having that different point of view from something outside the context of UX, I think is 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 really helpful to make different connections in your brain to the problems that you're solving in your own um your own world well it sounds like a, a really good book um who's the author do you recall uh, i didn't write that down <laughs> it's called the phoenix project it's the it, it, it comes up at the top oh google, very good in the googles all right well the phoenix project sounds like a, a great uh, book recommendation for those looking to optimize process and uh 
I'm looking forward to actually taking a crack at, uh, at some of that in, uh, in our practice, as you were saying. Yep. Does that mean I have to write a Phoenix Project jingle now? <laughs> Thank you, Phoenix. <laughs> It'll just be the same jingle for everything. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, man. Well, uh, it was good catching up on uh, the Phoenix Project and work in, pro- uh, work in progress. I hope uh, our <laughs> listeners will take a minute to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you stay in the loop on that. Uh, as well as uh, reach out to us on Twitter so that uh, we can hear if you've got experiences that uh, that help with this work in progress problem. Also, apparently commenting on iTunes helps somehow. So if you want to do that, go ahead. Give us a comment. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we appreciate anything uh, people uh, do to to help us get discovered so more people can listen. Um, But more importantly, to give us feedback to make sure that the, the podcast is time well spent with the uh, awesome user experience peoples. <laughs> All right, so Larry, you are That's at correct. LA King on Twitter, and I am at Superman. And this has been another episode. See you next of time. UX like us. Thanks. <laughs>